Shalom. Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder, Longmont area of northern Colorado. This teaching was recorded in a live Midrashic setting. We've edited it for clarity, but you may notice some jumps where we've taken out inaudible comments and sidetracks. Enjoy the study. So today we are going to finish Galatians, and we're in chapter 6, so let's just start. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. That's a confusing passage of Scripture. Well, let's, let's start, and depending on what your translation is, one of them says in verse 2, bear one another's burden. And then in verse 5 it says, for each will have to bear his own burden, depending on what translation you have. Two different words there in Greek. The first burden is baros, which is Strong's 922, and the second is phorion, which is 543. The first one refers to weight. In other words, it's something that's heavy. So you you have a block of metal that has weight to it. That would be the word that you would use. The second one refers to something that is carried. That could be a burden that I'm carrying on my hand. In other words, there's no connotation of weight in the second one. It's simply something you carry. It can be heavy, it can be light, it's unknown. The way I have heard this taught is the first bear one another's burden, since it does refer to actually something that is heavy, the connotation there is you're carrying something that is too heavy for you, or trying to carry something that is too heavy for you. The second one, there's no connotation of weight there, so what it says is basically pull your own weight, but there's no connotation that you shouldn't be able to do it. Bear one another's burdens, and again, what I think this means is when someone is carrying more than he is designed to carry, you need to come alongside and help him out. That's, as I say, different than the second burden in the paragraph, which is, I, I would take as pull your own weight. I mean, there's two different things there. In other words, everybody's designed to be useful to carry stuff. The mere carrying of burdens in and of itself is not onerous. It's when you've got to carry something that's heavier than you're designed to carry that it becomes a problem. And so, fulfill the law of Christ. This is obviously one of the places where those who are antinomian, which is to say against Torah, will come and say, see, 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 he's talking here about the New Testament stuff. And he's not talking about the Old Testament stuff. That's the way you will see this spun, typically. Obviously, I disagree. And the reason that I disagree is because of my belief and faith that Messiah, Yeshua, is in fact God. Having read every word he has written or spoken, he didn't write them, he spoke them and somebody else copied them, 
I don't find anything in his life or in his words that cast any doubt on the continuing validity of the law of Moses. That's the first thing. So, as I say, unless you're looking at the words of Yeshua through what I think are warped glasses, you will not find anything in his words that casts doubt or supersedes or changes the Torah. And since I do believe he's God, and I believe that the Torah was dictated to Moses by God, I don't find any reason why he would later contradict himself. That's my take on what the law of Christ is. Verse 6. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. I like that. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What he's doing in 25 words or less is he is explaining God's iron law of sowing and reaping. And we haven't talked about that in a while. The uh, first couple of years, three years, we talked about it extensively. That was one of my themes in Midrash for a while, but it's been a while since we've done that, so it's good perhaps to talk about it again. God uses natural things to teach us about spiritual things. The entire creation speaks of the way God works. Everybody understands agriculture. The law of agriculture is you go out into a field, you prepare the ground, you throw perfectly good food on the ground in the hopes that that food will grow and return to you a bounty. And by the way, that is an act of faith. Because if you had no faith, what you would do is you would take that wheat or those lima beans or whatever it was that you had for seed and you eat them. Because it is, the, in fact, the case that seeds are typically perfectly good food. So what you're doing is you're scattering something useful on, in the dirt with the idea that you're going to reap a harvest. Now, if you walk through your field and you scatter wheat, when you come into your field months later, you do not expect to see soybeans. You wouldn't walk into a soybean field and say, well, golly, I planted wheat. What the heck happened with all these soybeans? Furthermore, you know that when you scatter seed, there is going to be a delay. And you have got to tend your field between the time you scatter the seed and the time you reap your harvest. So the law of sowing and reaping is you have to so you have to spend something. In other words, you've got this perfectly good food in your hand. You've got to risk it. You've got to scatter it on the ground. Then you've got to tend it. Then you will reap more than what you sowed, and you will reap later than you sowed. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. You reap later than you sow. And, oh, by the way, Sowing is an act of faith because you've got to spend something that's valuable in order to sow. That's what Paul is talking about here. When you follow the Torah and you do the mitzvot, 
in other words, good deeds, what you're doing is you are putting yourself out, you're spending something, could be your time, could be your effort, could be money. In other words, you could give away money, all sorts of mitzvot. You spend something, and what he's saying is you will then reap in the same kind as you sow. You will reap more than you sowed, and you will reap later than you sowed. It also works for sin, the same law. It, it, it's simply that everything's consistent. So what happens? what happens is when you sin, you are going to reap what you sow, you are going to reap more than you sowed, and you are going to reap with a time delay. Now, the difference between sin and agriculture is sin gives you the harvest up front. You get the good stuff up front, whereas with agriculture and God, you get the good stuff at the end. So the hook that sin has on you is instant gratification. So what happens when you sin is you get the fun right now, and you reap the harvest much later. And the pleasure's up here, the pain is down here with sin. With agriculture, the pain is down here at the beginning. In other words, you've got to work, you've got to plow, you've got to weed, you've got to do all that stuff, and the good comes at the end. So they're, they're, they're just exactly mirror images of each other. But the same law applies to both. And that's what Paul is saying here. And he says it in a number of his other letters. I mean, it's not unique to this letter at all. And it certainly is a principle that God teaches. Verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. In other words, you can sow your seed, and then you can walk away, and you can ignore your field for the next several months, and you will come back, and what you'll have is weeds. You won't have a harvest. And Paul is saying the same thing there. In other words, you got to keep after it. you got to keep tending your garden. Verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. I will stop there a minute. There are all sorts of bogus teachings that are hung on that one sentence. They typically have to do with healing. The common interpretation of that is Paul was going blind. He had eye problems. And so he had to write really big so that he could see what he had written. They get that from the other letter, and I don't remember which one of his letters is, where he talks about a thorn in the flesh. So they take the thorn in the flesh, and they take this passage... And they say, Paul's thorn in the flesh must have been an eye disease, which is really common in the desert. And, oh, by the way, if Paul couldn't heal himself, what makes you think you're going to be able to be healed anyway? That's the way the the argument goes. And it all falls apart because the other passage of Scripture doesn't mean what they think it means. There's only one other place in Scripture where thorns in the flesh are mentioned, and they are in Numbers. We just went through them on a Torah portion this week. And what God says to Moses, and Moses tells the leaders, is if you don't go in there and clean out all of the Philistines and all the other tribes that are in the land, they will be snares and thorns in your flesh. So if you go with the principle of expositional constancy, which is a wonderful long phrase, which simply means that the Bible is consistent, then a thorn in the flesh has got to refer to people. So if you read this letter to the Galatians, what are we dealing with? What is Paul dealing with in this letter? He is dealing with people who are coming along behind him 
and messing up the teaching that he has given. These are literally thorns in the flesh. The point is the whole letter of Galatians deals with people who are coming along after him and basically trying to undo what he has taught. And that is a textbook definition of a thorn in the flesh. I don't know what this passage especially means other than it probably means what it says. Remember we said earlier on that, that Paul is pounding the keyboard? You know, as he's, you know, ah, 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 he, I mean, he's, he's angry. And I, I am expecting that the simple meaning is the straightforward meaning that he is writing in big, bold letters and underlining things and he's passionate about what he's writing. But I don't take it to mean that Paul had an eye defect, which is what it's often taken to mean. Verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Okay, so what's that mean? What I think is being spoken of here are these are the people of the circumcision party who are coming along and they are trying to convince the new believers that they must be circumcised according to the oral Torah. The reason that they are doing that is because they have got all of these Gentiles in their congregation. And these Gentiles are not sacrificing to Caesar, but they're not Jews. And what they don't want to do is be accused of harboring rebels. Because if the Romans accuse them of harboring rebels, what will happen is the Romans will come in and destroy their synagogue and scatter them, just like they did in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., So the motivation, if you will, among those who are advocating oral Torah circumcision is we have got to do something with these people that are in our midst. In other words, they're coming here every Shabbat. They're having fellowship with us. They're saying that they are believers in the same God we are saying is the last thing we want to have happen is the Romans to get wind of this and think we are setting up some kind of a cult here that is running contrary to Caesar. We as Jews have a legitimate dispensation. We do not have to sacrifice to Caesar. We cannot let somebody else use our disposition if they are not truly full members of our religion. What Paul is saying here, however, is he is yelling. They don't care about you. All they care about is keeping the state off of their back. That's what Paul is saying here in this sentence. Now, what their actual motivations were... I'm sure they're a mixed bag. Certainly you'll have the people on the church board that say, hey guys, we got to do something about these Gentiles or we're going to be in trouble pretty soon. And you have these other ones that say, hey guys, we need to get these guys regularized and, and make them Jews and this is how we do it. I mean, there, there'll be all sorts of motivations within that body. But what Paul is yelling here is that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In other words, we've got these people in the synagogue who are not legally Jews. They follow Christ. And so we Jews who are legitimate do not want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In other words, we don't want them to bring persecution into our body because they will not follow either Caesar or us. 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Which is, again, the way I would describe that is 
You ever been to a Baptist church where people brag about how many people they've led to Christ? I'm suggesting that that's notches on their belt. Again, I'm I'm suggesting that's what Paul is saying here. And, And just as in a Baptist church, you will have all sorts of motivations. You will have all sorts of motivations in, in the synagogue. I'm, I'm simply saying what I think Paul is saying. Verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Messiah, Yeshua Messiah, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Full stop. Listen to what he just said. First off, he's saying, I am not paying any attention to Caesar, and I am not paying any attention to the Pharisees. Those are, I, I am dead to both of those, right? And remember, way back in the first lesson, Paul is an apostle. And what is an apostle? A sent one. One who is sent by God. And biblical apostles, so far as I've been able to dredge out of my memory, always have had a personal encounter with God. Where God comes down and taps them on the shoulder or grabs them by the stacking swivel and says, you go. So they have got a a personal commission from God. And the, the word literally means sent ones. And what they are sent to do is to confront the secular religious authority. Notice how I said that secular pharaoh for example a state religion Caesar a state religion Nimrod a state religion so the first thing an apostle is sent to do is to confront the state religion and to rescue the people of God out of that system that's what Paul's doing and what he's saying here in this is Caesar the Pharisees I'm dead to both of them I am a sent one I am sent by God I got my commission directly from God and Paul did he got knocked off his ass on the road, right? And Yeshua and Yeshua talked directly to him. So he has his commission directly from God. So he is a prototypical apostle. And he is sent to confront the cult of Caesar. And he is sent to rescue the people of God out of the world religious system. And that's what he's saying here. I don't care about the Pharisees. I don't care about the Caesar cult. That's all dead to me. I've got my marching orders, and this is what I'm doing. Now, having said that, verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. Walk by what rule? The Torah. That you're dead both to Caesar and to rabbinic authority, and you follow God. And I will suggest that you also follow the Torah. But look what he says. Peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. Very interesting phraseology. That tells me lots of things, but one of them it tells me is Israel is not done away with. The other thing that it tells me is there are no covenants with Gentiles. Now, there are promises made to Israel that Gentiles will be able to come in. That's what Abraham's promise is, that you will be a blessing to many nations. And the Torah says over and over again, if you have got Gentiles living among you, it is one Torah. You treat them just the same as everybody else. Now, there are certain things they can't do until they get circumcised. They can't eat the Passover, for example. 
But as long as they live with you, there is one Torah for everybody. The same for you, the same for everybody else. You do not make special rules for Gentiles or against Gentiles. So what Paul is saying here, in my humble interpretation, is those who are following this teaching that I am giving are grafted into Israel, and peace be upon them, and upon all Israel. So he is blessing not only the Gentiles here who are following his ways, he is blessing all of Israel, which doesn't sound to me like God is finished with Israel. And again, that's the way much of Galatians is read by much of what is called the church today. Verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Yeshua. The grace of our Lord, Yeshua Messiah, be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So again, I will suggest let no one cause me trouble. I think he's talking about thorns in the flesh again. In other words, he's saying I've had it right up to here and I'm done with this. The comment was, it says in her Bible that it bears upon himself the scars of Yeshua. And Does that mean marks of persecution? Absolutely. Paul was beaten. He was stoned. He was treated very roughly. And again, he started off this thing by laying out his credentials as an apostle. He's finishing it up the same way. Remember the whole first chapter as he gave his pedigree that he got his marching orders directly from Messiah. And he went out and he, and he preached for something like 20 years before going back to Jerusalem and checking with the official church to see if he was doing okay. And now at the end, he closes the same way. He says, I bear in my body the marks of the scars of Yeshua, which is to say, I'm the real deal, and I ain't taking any more guff. Comment was, look at 21st century Judaism, which is the same as 1st century Pharisaism, just 2,000 years older. And their attitude is, you're a Jew when we say you're a Jew. And if you immigrate to Israel, for example, and you want to become a Jew, you will be converted according to the Orthodox rabbinic method, or you don't get converted. In other words, you become a Jew when they say you're a Jew. And what Paul is saying here in his letter is you become a Hebrew when God says you're a Hebrew. In other words, you don't need to go through any rigmarole with respect to an earthly church in order to become a Hebrew you become a Hebrew the same way Abraham became a Hebrew. You trust in God and you start walking in obedience to his instructions. That is what makes you a Hebrew. Not a rabbi. Anybody else? Yeah? We really didn't do verse 15. All right, let me just read 15 again. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Which is to say you become a new creation when God makes you a new creation. And you become a new creation before you get circumcised. So your state of circumcision has nothing to do with whether or not you are a new creation in Messiah. Full stop. Once you become a new creation, you start walking according to the written Torah of Moses. At some point, it will become something that you will do to become circumcised if you are not already circumcised. And we said earlier that little boys in the United States are routinely circumcised at birth. So are little Arabs. 
this is not saying that the law of Moses with respect to circumcision is invalid. It is saying that you're becoming a new creation has nothing to do with, with whether you're circumcised or not because becoming a new creation precedes circumcision. It does not succeed circumcision. Would someone like to close in prayer? Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this study and would like to hear more, go to www.crimsonthread.com. There you'll find this study in its entirety, as well as other resources for studying the scriptures from a messianic perspective. Thank you and shalom.